0: Alright, welcome back to Healthspan, this is Michael. This is part 4 of How Not to Diet Weight Loss Booster section by Dr. Michael Greger. In this episode, I will be discussing the importance of intermittent fasting and caloric restriction, uh, ketogenesis and the keto diet, meal frequency, the importance of staying hydrated, and the concept of negative calories. Now, if any of these topics sound interesting to you, uh, make sure to keep listening. So we're gonna begin the discussion with intermittent fasting. Now, in literally every single one of my podcasts that I've done so far, in every single one of the books I've covered, I've discussed intermittent fasting. And the reason all these authors like Jason Fung, Sachin Panda, um, David Sinclair, Walter Longo, the reason all these authors are discussing the importance of intermittent fasting and caloric restriction is because it works. This is one of the tried and true ways to lose weight. And increase your longevity and health span and this has been f- proven over and over for for many many years in across all animal models um, just the importance of restricting calories and fasting and taking a break from food and as dr. Michael Greger puts it here he says we've known for more than a century that caloric restriction can increase the lifespan of animals and the metabolic slowdown may be the mechanism so he's saying that The reason that our our lifespan is being increased is because our metabolism is slowing down and one of the ways our bodies lower our resting metabolic rate is by creating a cleaner burning more efficient mitochondria which are the power powerhouse of our cells those are the ones that are making the atp now these new mitochondria appear to create the same energy with less oxygen requirements and less free radical exhaustion so when our metabolism is slowing down our mitochondria is becoming more efficient and it's creating the same energy but creating less free radical damage. And as he puts here, indeed the largest caloric restriction trial to date found both metabolic slowing and a reduction in free radical induced oxidative stress, both of which may slow down the rate of aging. So both the metabolic slowdown and the reduction in free radicals and oxidative stress may slow aging. Now, he refers to a study called Calorie, which stands for Comprehensive Assessment of Long Term Effects of Reducing Intake of Energy or Calorie. And this was a study where they took 100 men and women. It was a two year study of non obese men and women. And they, what they did was reduce their calories by 25% over these two years. Now, here are the results. Overall, there was an 18 pound 18-pound loss, 3 inches off their waist, a decrease in blood pressure, an increase in insulin sensitivity, which is good, a decrease in triglycerides, and a decrease in cholesterol. So these are the results of this two-year study. We saw 18 pounds drop, 3 inches off their waist, lower blood pressure, basically all the things that are good for us. And after the completion of this calorie study, even though their metabolism was slowed down, They retained about 50% of the weight loss in two years, which is good because we know uh, from the show, let's say The Biggest Loser, we know that a lot of times these people tend to put on the weight back immediately um, because because of their metabolism. And one other benefit was after the extended caloric restriction in the study, cravings for sugary and fatty foods do go down, so I'm going to get to the psychological and Other health benefits of this intermittent fasting but just for now remember that cravings for the sugary and fatty foods also went down in this calorie study and another thing in this calorie study trial was that 70% of the lost body weight was fat and 30% was lean body mass so these people may have lost 30% lean body mass but one of the best ways to prevent muscle mass uh, from deteriorating is exercise And this calorie study actually had no structural exercise component. And similar to the bariatric surgery uh, studies, about 30% of the weight loss was lean mass. So he puts here that to reduce the lean mass loss, you should be resistance training. You should be exercising. So intermittent fasting along with resistance training will help you not only lose weight, but help you keep on the muscle. And that is the overall goal that we should be going for. Less body fat more muscle so in terms of fasting again fasting is the single greatest thing you can do for your health in my opinion uh, besides taking certain drugs like uh, metformin and it's funny because fasting has been branded as this quote next big weight loss fad but the ironic thing is that there's long long-standing history throughout various spiritual traditions like uh, moses jesus muhammad buddha all these people fasted. This has been going on literally for centuries and centuries. And there was a cool quote in here that he put. He, he stated that in 1732, a noted physician wrote, quote, He that eats till he is sick must fast till he is well. I love this quote. I'm going to say it again. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, give credit to who it, who it was. He just puts a physician wrote, he that eats until he is sick must fast until he is well. Uh, I just think that's a, a brilliant quote uh, that encompasses true health. Now, what is the problem with the fasting? Why don't more people do it? And, uh, you know, wh- why do people always tend to com- uh, complain about this fasting? And th- the main problem here with fasting and calorie restriction is the sustainability aspect. Now, the reason most diets don't work almost by definition is that people tend to go on and off them. That's why it's called a diet, because they're just on it for a short period of time. This is the problem, and we know for a fact that permanent weight loss is only achieved through permanent lifestyle changes. Now, fasting proponents also cite this psychological benefit of realigning people's uh, perceptions and motivations. And there's this break from food that may allow us some opportunity to kind of pause and reflect on the role food is playing in their lives. Not only the power it has over them, but also the power... They can have over it. So again, we're kind of uh, relating back to this fasting and, and spiritual component where we're kind of not really realizing how much we eat and our, our relationship with food. If you listen to the podcast Mind Pump, they talk about the relationship with food all the time. Uh, some of us have better relationships with food than others. A lot of times people use food to cope with stress, to cope with uh, you know anxiety. They're using this food. This is a bad relationship with food. But fasting has been shown to have some psychological benefit of, again, realigning people's perceptions and motivations. And in a fasting study that was entitled, quote, Correction and Control of Intractable Obesity, a subject's personality was described as changing from one of desperation with abandonment of hope to that of an eager extrovert full of plans for a promising future. And she realized that her weight was within her own power to control. So again, we're seeing this huge benefit of these people who were depressed, these people who were desperate, who were hopeless, and then they kind of changed into these extroverted uh, people who are have promised in the future, all just from this fasting um, fasting trial. So maybe if uh, you're suffering from this anxiety or depression. Um, maybe not anorexia or bulimia, but if you're you're suffering from some sort of psychological thing, uh, you may want to give this fasting a trial. Now, remember that fasting for a day or so can make people often feel like moody, irritable, and distracted. But the cool thing is, within a few days into a fast, many people often report a clear and elated and alert, even kind of euphoric feeling. And you may have felt this before if you've done a fast yourself. And this may be due to, in part, to this rise in endorphin level that accompanies fasting. And mood enhancement during fasting is also thought to perhaps represent some sort of adaptive survival mechanism to really motivate us to search for food. Remember, caveman days, we didn't have food every day. It was feast, famine. So whenever we were in famine, we needed some sort of motivation, some sort of mood enhancement to go and forage for food, to go hunt some buffalo and This has kind of translated to us modern day. When we go for long periods of fasting, you kind of realize like, okay, uh, you have some sort of survival mechanism that kicks in. It's inherent. It's kind of ingrained in your DNA. Now, he asks here, is fasting effective and how do fasted patients do long term? Now, put six such studies together. Hundreds of obese subjects who fasted for an average of 49 days lost an average of 52 pounds and around 1 or 2 years later 40% had retained at least some of the weight loss. So although again most most gained back all their weight, 40% still kept off at least some weight in an extra, in in a in, in this weight loss study. And then researchers set up a study comparing the sustainability of weight loss at three different different speeds. So you had one 6-day six, 6 days of fasting, two three weeks of very low caloric restriction diet or three, six weeks of a low calorie diet of 1,200 calories. And a year later, the fasting group, the one who fasted for six days, was the only one who had sustained significant weight loss. But they looked nine years later in the study and only 12 out of the 121 people in the study, uh, only 12 of them, again, dropped, uh, you know, had some sort of uh overall accomplishment. Um and, and again like this isn't uh big numbers but still it's the fasting group. And remember fasting only works long term if it can act as this sort of jump start to a more healthful diet. So again the problem is sustainability. But if we can use this fasting to kind of springboard us and spearhead spearhead a new journey into a, a more healthy diet, a more healthy lifestyle uh, this is, this is the, where the real power comes from this, because we know you need to, in, you need to kind of ingrain this into your lifestyle. You need to make it part of your life. You can't just do it for a short period and then have it go away and then come back. You just have to kind of integrate it into your life. That's the only way to make it sustainable. So he puts here, is fasting safe? Is fasting safe? Uh short-term answer is yes. Um, he goes into examples here where, Let's say people become vitamin C deficient, they may develop scurvy. If people develop a uh, thiamine deficiency, they may develop something called beriberi. Uh, people may have some electrolyte disorders. But I need to uh, sort of talk about a a YouTuber. His, you may have heard of him. His name is Connor Murphy. About six months ago, he went on a 40-day fast of nothing of water. And yes, he's still alive. He's doing really well. Of course, he lost all of his muscle, but... Uh, You know, he's still alive after 40 days of fasting. And for me and here, the real problem is is the refeeding syndrome. So fasting is safe only to the extent that you know how to to come out of a fast safely. Now, what do I mean by this? Let's say you go on a prolonged fasting. Let's say 5, 10 days, whatever it is. Whenever you reintroduce food, what happens is, those nutrients that come with the foods, like the thiamine, which is vitamin B1, and like the other vitamins and phosphorus, all of these nutrients are used to help metabolize the food you just ate. And because you're using those nutrients to help metabolize, uh, what happens is you kind of deplete your electrolytes. And this can be a, a huge problem. Like, you don't want to mess with your electrolytes. And when you deplete your thiamine phosphorus, uh, you begin to develop like neurological problems, cardiac problems. So he puts here that um, if too much food is taken before these nutrients can be repleted, demand may exceed supply and whatever residual stores are still left can be driven down even further with potentially fatal consequences. So the the moral of the story here is if you're going to prolong fast, make sure to reintroduce food slowly, maybe just have a bowl of broccoli, maybe just have a small bowl of vegetables don't don't pig out on your first meal that could be really bad um, so that kind of ends the whole caloric restriction and uh, and fasting um, again, you can reference some of my older podcasts. I talk about fasting in a lot of them uh, where I kind of go into more detail. but for now, I want to discuss the ketogenic diets now before I begin, it is very safe to say that Dr. Greger, Dr. Michael Greger, does not like ketogenic diets. Um, I just want to preface that because he kind of bashes ketogenic diets. Um, But for me, after reading Jason Fung's book, uh, The Diabetes Code and The Obesity Code, I see the importance of a ketogenic diet. So I'll go ahead and tell you what Dr. Michael Greger says, and then I'll kind of give you my opinion of of, uh, what I think you should do. And as far as the ketogenic diet, uh, the prescription of fasting for the treatment of epileptic, epileptic seizures can actually date back to Hippocrates. So the real reason the ketogenic diet was kind of invented was to help prevent seizures. I don't know, that's just kind of a fun fact. And then uh, he puts here that in 1921, there was a physician and scientist at the Mayo Clinic who suggested trying what he called, quote, a ketogenic diet which is this high-fat diet, which is designed to be so deficient in carbohydrates, it could effectively mimic the fasting state and remarkably uh, improve seizures as well. They noticed that in a a fasting or ketogenic diet, seizures uh, were noted to decrease over time. Um, I mean, of course, we have like valproic acid and a bunch of other uh, lamotrigine, like a bunch of other drugs to help with seizures, uh, but that's just a cool, fun fact that ketogenic diet was used to help treat seizures a long time ago. Now, how about keto, keto's, uh, ketogenic diets for cancer? Now, here's kind of like the the debate about cancer and ketogenic diet. The theory goes, if you know anything about cancer, you know that these cells are rapidly dividing, they are rapidly growing, and that is their job, to just grow, 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 grow uh, evade apoptosis, uh, evade cell signaling, just keep growing. That is the point. And what is the best thing that cancer feeds off of? It's glucose. Cancer feeds off of glucose way better than our even normal cells. So the idea put forth is that if we can starve these cancers from growing, we could potentially uh, shrink the tumor and eventually use radiation or chemo to get rid of it. And There's this idea, again, or hypothesis that cancer cannot feed off ketones as well as it can for glucose. So if we, again, go to a ketogenic diet, which is a low carbohydrate diet, we can essentially starve the cancer uh, and allow our own cells to proliferate. Uh, But he puts here that a common refrain is that, quote, cancer feeds on sugar. He says this is true, but all cells also feed on sugar. Advocating ketogenic diets for cancer is like saying Stalin breathed air, so we should boycott oxygen. That's just what he puts here. He, and he puts here that cancer can also feed on ketones, and ketones have been found to fuel human breast cancer growth and drive metastasis in an experimental model more than doubling tumor growth. And he also, he, he also puts here that high-fat diets in general are perpetrated to increase breast cancer risks through oxidative stress and then uh, also through hormone dysregulation and inflammatory signaling. And also that saturated fat intake and uh, prostate cancer progression have this strong association. And there was actually a meta-analysis that was done of studies on diet and breast cancer mortality, which concluded that saturated fat intake negatively impacts upon breast cancer survival finding a 50% increase in the hazard of breast cancer-specific death for those with most saturated fat intake compared to those women with the least. And one of the reasons that the American Cancer Association, the the Society of Clinical Oncology for Breast Survivorship Care Guidelines, uh, the reason they recommend a diet pattern of breast cancer patients that have essentially an opposite di- of a ketogenic diet these societies recommend a high in, fi- in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, and low in saturated fat. So what he's saying is here is that all these different uh, societies of oncology, uh, American Cancer Society, they're all recommending high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, and low in saturated fat, which is pretty much the opposite of a ketogenic diet. Now again, take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, and kind of do your own research. Uh, I'll have something to say at the end of this, uh, in my opinion. And he also puts here that in in terms of gut reaction, so ketogenic diets have been shown to reduce the richness and diversity of our gut flora. And microbiome changes can actually be detected within 24 hours of switching to a high-fat, low-fiber diet. Now, we know the importance of having a diverse uh, gut microbiome and proliferating those that are beneficial to us, like acromensia, like bifidobacteria. But he puts here that saturated fat, in particular, appears to cause this obesogenic and pro-inflammatory changes in gut gut flora, but most of the data are derived from animal models. And human studies have actually shown a drop in beneficial bifidobacteria and a decrease in overall short-chain fatty acid production, both of which would be expected to increase in the risk of uh, GI diseases. So, in summary, more ketogenic diets, more high, high in saturated fats, less richness and diversity of our gut microbiome, which is not good. We do not want that. Now, how about ketogenic diet for diabetes? Sure, if you stick to mostly eating fat, your blood sugar will stay low, but you may actually make the underlying disease worse, he puts here. We've known for nearly a century that if you put people on a ketogenic diet, their carb intolerance can actually skyrocket within just two days, one week on an 80% fat diet, and you can quintuple your blood sugar spikes in reaction to the same carb load compared to a week on a low-fat diet. And he also puts here that just a single meal high in saturated fat can make the cause of diabetes, carbohydrate intolerance worse within four hours. So again, this is completely contradicting to what Jason Fung is saying in his diabetes code, he promotes, he pushes this ketogenic diet because, again, we do not want sugar spikes. We don't want our blood glucose to spike. Uh, we want good glycemic control. And the way we do that is eating foods that don't spike our insulin. What are the foods that don't spike our insulin? It's the fats. It's all those healthy fats that we don't want spiking. But he puts here that when people, even though they may be eating a ketogenic diet, when they go back to a carbohydrate diet, uh, they're not as sensitive, again, to this, like, to this rise in glucose. And their glucose just kind of spikes up rapidly. So that's what he's kind of demonstrating here is that, sure, it may lower our blood glucose. But whenever they eat carbohydrates again, this is going to just skyrocket our, our intolerance for carbohydrates. And another thing he mentions here is um, the advanced glycated end product. This is something I've talked about before. Now, one of the reasons that diabetics often suffer from nerve and artery damage is this inflammatory metabolite uh, known as methylglyoxal. Now, methylglyoxal is as part of AGE. Again, AGE is this advanced glycation end product that gets deposited in our nerves and arteries. And it causes inflammation. It causes damage. Causes us to lose our eyesight. Causes us to lose uh, feeling in our feet. Causes heart attacks. This is age. And methylglyoxal is one of the components of this age. And what uh, Dartmouth researchers found was that two of the three weeks on an Atkins diet actually led to a significant increase in this methylglyoxal level. And those in an active ketosis did even worse, which is basically uh, people in ketosis, they experienced a doubling of this glycotoxin level in the bloodstream. So again, ketogenic diets may not be the best for diabetics. That is Dr. Michael Greger's opinion. Uh, That is not my opinion. I'm just reading what he says in this book. Uh, You can formulate your own opinion as well. He also puts here that ketogenic diets may cause a steady rate of bone loss, presumably because ketosis can put people in a chronic acidotic state. Ketosis themselves are acidotic and can result in mild metabolic acidosis. Now, Here's the problem I have with this whole ketogenic diet section. I didn't read into these studies, but I can assume and I can assure you that a lot of these studies, the people in these studies weren't eating the good kinds of fat. I can guarantee you they're eating like the typical Atkins diet, like bacon and high red meat and high uh, omega-6, which is like inflammatory, um, the uh, inflammatory molecule. Uh, not omega-3s, they're probably eating a lot of eggs, they're probably eating dairy. This is why all these studies are kind of skewed towards people who are are doing poorly on this ketogenic diet because they're not eating the foods that they should be eating on a ketogenic diet. And I promise you that if ketogenic diets are done right, uh, you can see drastic changes in your overall health. You you can lose weight, Uh, you can control your diabetes better. Uh, you can lower your risk of cancer by being on a ketogenic diet, but you have to do it the right way. Now, what is the right way? Well, you need to eat the, the healthy fats. And there are these kind of big four that Peter Atia and a bunch of other people talk about. These are fish, particularly salmon, avocado, nuts, and olive oil. Those are your big four. This is the ketogenic diet done right. You want to have this sort of like a Mediterranean-style ketogenic diet, right? High in fish, high in avocado, high in nuts, olive oil. If you do it the right way, you will see benefits. So again, do your research. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, maybe implement ketogenic diets with fasting. Um, often, it, often people vary on their diets. Um, no single diet is best for everyone. But uh, some people may do better on ketogenic diets, even athletically. So it's up to you to try it out and uh, see how you feel. Now, again, he goes into the different types of fasting, alternate day fasting, 5-2 fasting, fasting mimicking diet. I've talked about this extensively already um, in previous podcasts, so I don't want to go into it again. Instead, I want to move on to the next, kind of, uh, the next topic, which is the meal frequency. Now, the the benefits, the perpetrated benefits of eating more frequent meals on appetite, uh, metabolic rate and fat mobilization and weight loss have often failed to materialize. And randomizing people to eat the same number of calories in either a single daily meal or spread it out all the way up to nine meals per day has failed to consistently has failed consistently to yield differences in weight loss in studies ranging in duration from a week to a year. Again, what what am I saying? The summarizing feature is that it's just ironic that people are kind of transitioning from eating frequently to fasting. And then sometimes they snack. Sometimes they, um, again, there's always having this difference in meal frequency. But the data shows is uh, there's no real difference between these three square meals or, or the 17 meals. Um, in terms of the studies that he just listed. Um, But one thing I do want to mention, and one thing I do want to bring forth is that we should try to avoid snacking as much as possible. Uh, I've never been a big snacker. I don't recommend snacking, even if it is healthy snacks. I recommend eating two, maybe three times a day in a time-restricted feeding window. Um, This has been shown, again, across all animal models to improve longevity, uh, reduce inflammation, uh, reduce our bad cholesterol, uh, reduce our blood sugar. All the health benefits come from eating less frequently and eating in a time-restricted feeding window. So again, try to avoid snacking, but if you do, as Dr. Sachin Panda puts it, do it earlier in the day and make it healthy snacks. Now, as far as metabolic booster section, um, I want to begin with this sort of diving reflex. So we're moving on to a new section called metabolic boosters. Now picture walking across a frozen lake and suddenly falling through the ice, plunging into the frigid depth. Now instead uh, instead, what happens is w- with your heart rate, it's actually gonna slow down. Now this is what is called as the diving reflex, which is first described back in 1700s. And air breathing animals are born with this autonomic safety feature to help keep us from drowning. Okay again our heart is going to be slowing down. Instead of instead of speeding up when we fall into this ice cold water. Now I'm going to talk about why this is important in just a minute. But he has another fact here in a study to back it up. That drinking water stimulates as much of a noradrenaline release. As drinking a couple cups of coffee. Or smoking a couple of, of unfiltered cigarettes. Again drinking water stimulates the same uh noradrenaline which is this hormone um, released from our adrenal gland that is the fight or flight hormone and it's causing us uh when we drink water we're releasing the same amount as drinking a couple cups of coffee or smoking a couple of cups of cigarettes now if it has the same uh action as cups of coffee how come when you drink water uh, your heart doesn't pound and your blood pressure doesn't shoot through the roof and it's it's like this diving reflex I just mentioned. When you drink water, your body shoots out the noradrenaline while simultaneously sending signals to your heart to slow it down. Um, now, what what does it have to do with metabolic boosting? So, with so much noradrenaline being released, could drinking a few glasses of water cause your your uh, cause you to burn more body fat? Could you safely tap into this like safe alternative instead of drinking? Uh, coffee, you know, too much coffee or cigarettes, can we tap into this noradrenaline and burn our body fat? So we actually put this to the test. And in this test, there was a, uh, which was published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, the study results were described as, quote, uniquely spectacular. So drinking two cups of water increased the metabolic rate of men and women by 30%. Two cups of water Increased metabolic rate of men and women, 30%. Now, the increase started within 10 minutes of water drinking and reached a maximum within an hour. And in the 90 minutes after drinking a single tall glass of water, the subjects actually burn an extra 24 calories. So simply drinking a tall glass of water four times throughout the day would wipe out nearly 100 extra calories, more than the calories burned by uh, taking some weight loss doses of, you know, you know ephedrine. So a similar effect was actually found in overweight and obese children. Drinking about two cups of water led to a 25% increase in metabolic rate within an hour. So do not forget to drink your water. Uh, This is something I'm kind of guilty of. The, The time kind of flies by when I'm working and I forget to drink. So do not forget to drink water. As far as the temperature and dosing, a single cup of water may be sufficient to rev up, rev up noradrenaline nerves, but additional benefit is seen as in two or more cups and How about temperature so if you compare drinking body temperature water to room temperature water, water to cold uh, cold water uh, significant causes cons- significant constriction in blood flow to the skin uh, and this only occurs after drinking room temperature or cold water. And not the warm water or tepid water could boost metabolic rate as much as cold water. So it is true that cold water actually burns more fat. Um, and again, this this is all norepinephrine mediated. So that is the importance of drinking water. It can help boost uh, fat and fat loss, and also uh, boost weight loss as well. So as far as this last session i'm going to talk about it really quick it's the negative calorie preloading now again uh, if we time it right before a meal could we fill ourselves up enough to cut down on the calories inside of the equation calories in calories out so again there's there's no such thing as this negative calorie but what if you give young adults two cups of water immediately before a meal do they eat less the answer is yes Indeed, they eat about 20% less, taking in more than 100 fewer calories. So again, if you have this problem of overeating, try preloading with these, quote, negative calories. Where can you get these negative calories? Well, I just mentioned one, water. And then if you preload on other things, like let's say celery is a common one. If you, if you preload uh, on the celery or even low calorie dense foods, uh, what's going to happen? So again, this was put to the test by Penn State, they decided to put water-rich vegetables to the test. And studies were sub- su- studies uh, subjects were served pasta meal for lunch and told to eat as much or as little as they wanted. And on average, they ate about 900 calories. Now, what happened when you pre-lo- preloaded these uh, study subjects with 100 calories of just salad composed of lettuce, carrots, cherry tomatoes, celery, and cucumber? they more than 200 fewer calories of pasta. So in other words, uh, 200 calories, 100 calories in from the quote preload, 200 calories out. So in essence, the salad had quote negative 100 calories. Again, no such thing as negative, negative calories. The point he's trying to make here is that if you tend to eat too much, try to eat something before your big meal like Vegetables, something that'll fill you up. All that fiber will fill you up and make you satiated, causing you to eat less, causing you to lose weight. That's the idea. And he's also a big proponent of soup. He loves soups before meals. So remember the preloading pasta experiment I just talked about, where the first course they ate about 900 meals? When people were given about two cups of vegetable soup, which was around 150 calories, they only ate about 250, they ate about 250 fewer calories of pasta so again we're doing a net negative 100 calories and again overall if you do this again and again 100 calories a day can add up so i'm about almost 35 minutes in and i'm going to end the podcast here i will do one more uh, section of his weight loss boosters and then that'll be the end So, again, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you learned a little bit about uh, intermittent fasting, ketogenic diet, um, some metabolic boosters, some ways to, quote, create negative calories. Uh, If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to please leave a review. I will leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to send me a message or leave any comments or any suggestions of a next book I should talk about. Uh, But for now... Uh, This is the end of the podcast. Again, I hope you enjoyed. Hope you tune in next time. And uh, uh, thanks for listening.